Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Alternate Oscars. I'm your host, Gabe Warren, and with every episode, I, along with a special guest, will be celebrating and awarding our favorite films of each year, starting in 1928 and going on. We will discuss our brief thoughts on each film we nominate on, and comment on the actual Oscar year and some fun details on the ceremony. A few rules we always follow. We'll be strictly following the reminder list of eligible releases. Those can be found on the website and the OscarGoesTo.com. Thematic categories will also change and evolve over time as a reflection of the Academy's evolution over time. Today, um, my guest today is a writer from film experience, and he's also been a great help to me by putting together eligibility list per year on our box. Please welcome to the show, Claudio Alvarez. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, how are you doing today? How's your day been? How's this Easter day been? It's been good. I am excited to liberate myself from 1955. <laughs> yeah. Um, today we are going to be talking about 1955, um, the movie year, um, the films of 1955. And I think a good um, a question I always ask my guests is, what were your favorite films from this year that were not eligible? This applies to any film that was not released in 1955. That was released in 1955, but was not on the reminder list of eligible releases. Well, the 28th ceremony. At least. Yeah, as, as a matter of fact, uh, probably my favorite films from 1955 weren't eligible this Oscar year or, or really any year. Um, my some of my favorites from this year are international features like Pater Panchali, Satyajitraya's first film. Bardet from Dreyer, which is probably my favorite film of the year. Um, also, Mikio Naruse's work. It's, you know, the 1950s to me are really defined by an internal, uh, international cinema, both Asian cinema and European cinema, but unfortunately that's not always represented at the Oscars. And also, you know, uh, I should point out Smiles of a Summer Night by Ingmar Bergman was this year. Also, Lola Montes from Awfuls. It's a really great year when you think about it. Even, I think we'll discover it's even a good year within the, within the Oscar eligibility list. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that's represented by the actual ceremony, but we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, not by the actual nominees, for sure. <laughs> Um, so I think now we can get to our nominees and um, of course the rules are that we always start with the last category special effects and start and end with the first best picture and we take turns announcing our nominees and um, and uh, other guests sorry that just makes sense Okay, so I have prepared five nominees for each category. Um, or are we doing less than five? Um, I have, for special effects, I have three, but if you can find five, um, you can do less than five if you can't find a solid five. Okay, I tried, I tried to do five. Um, so for best visual effects, my nominees are Hiroshima, which features, I don't have the names, uh, unfortunately, of the credited special effects artists, but they did an incredible job both using 
actual footage from nuclear tests and also reproducing the immediate aftermath of the nuclear explosion at Hiroshima. Also, it came from beneath the sea, a Ray Ehrenhausen film with a giant octopus attacking San Francisco. And maybe, maybe for some, the effects haven't aged well, but I do love the animation of those tentacles, even if they're six when they should be eight. Mr. Roberts isn't a film I particularly enjoy, but I did enjoy the special effects, even the, the lo-fi stuff. I think probably the best element of the film is a flood of soap bubbles, which is a really nice practical effect that sort of brings some levity that I think the film overall needs. The Bridges of Tokori does a great work mixing actual footage of air combat and special effects created by Farshot Edward, John P. Fulton, and W. Wallace Kelly. And finally, The Reigns of Ranchipur, which I only discovered because it was among the actual Oscar nominees. Ray Kellogg's work for the final climactic sequence is rather impressive, even if the, last, the rest of the film, not so much. If you ever want to watch Richard Burton in brown face, uh, I don't know why you... Um, I don't know exactly why you would, but you can. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I'm not sure I want to watch anybody in brown face, but um, <laughs> but um, my nominees are the bridges at Tokori, the Dam Busters, it came from beneath the sea, Tarantula, and to catch a thief. <laughs> I, I thought of watching Tarantula, but I have a great fear of spiders, and <laughs> I already and I already watched sixty one other films for this. So. Yeah, um, I, I'll admit some, at least a couple of these films I haven't even seen, but I've just been so, I've just seen so many, and I've been so caught up that mm-hmm. I just have to say whatever, just put it on ballot, get to it later. Um. So next we have best film editing. Which the present Oscars sing is not uh, fit for the main ceremony anyway. <laughs> yeah, we're not like the, Os- the real Oscars. We actually respect the behind the scenes people without whom we wouldn't have movies. Exactly, especially film editing, which to me is maybe the most important thing in creating film. My nominees are It's Always Fair Weather, the work of Adrienne Fazan is just spellbinding the way the film uses and abuses the musical model, but does it in a cynical, almost realist way. The management of tone is formidable, but there are there's such great invention this was one of my favorite discoveries from doing this project, from watching a marathon of 1955 films. Next, there is A Journey to Italy, the work of Yolanda Benvenuti, who to me sort of synthesizes a moment after transition in film history. I think the film has some of the best edited sequences I've ever seen in, in terms of what the edit is signifying beyond the obvious, like when Ingrid Bergman regards the dead bodies, the dead bodies preserved in in volcanic ash at Pompeii 
and you almost feel that you're seeing an actress regard her own mortality because like the impression of the bodies in the volcanic ash, the film itself is sort of, you know, sort of a preservation of ghosts after a while, only in celluloid rather than ash. Next, there is Kiss Me Deadly. Michael Luciano did an incredible work on this film. Um, it's, it, it's again, just like it's always fair whether it was a, a marvelous discovery. This masterpiece of Cold War paranoia that is so unexpectedly bold and nasty and tonally jarring from the first moments when Clarice Leachman appears on screen walking aimlessly through a dark night to the explosive finale. It's an amazing piece of editing. And speaking of that ending, I love how abrupt and dry it is, even though what's happening is absolutely apocalyptic. The Wages of Fear, Madeleine Gug, Etienne Mousse, and Henri Rust did probably a, one of the greatest masterclasses in suspense. For those who don't know, The Wages of Fear is mostly set within um, cars transporting dynamite. Um, to stop an oil fire. It's incredibly suspenseful. It's been called, Henri-Georges Clouseau has been called, because of this film, the French Francis Hitchcock. And you can really see why by watching this perfectly cut and structured movie. And finally, speaking of structured, well-structured films, there is Ugetsu. Mitsuzo Miyata has to weave four storylines together, three of them very realistic, the other one going into more of a symbolic ghost story. It's a mixture of wildly diverging tones, and yet it all works, and it flows beautifully. And speaking of flowing, I love how uh, Kenji Mizoguchi and Mitsuzo Miyata use the solves in this film to unite um, tracking shots, and sometimes even bleed and sort of blur the lines of the space we're watching and time even. Especially in the section of the film set in House of a Noble Lady of Supernatural Origin. So those are my five nominees. Sweet, those are good. Um, that's a very good list. Um, I just wanted. To, I just want to double check. The Witches of Fear is eligible this year, right? Yeah, all of these are eligible. Okay. 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 I just wanna. I just wanna be sure. Um, because I didn't know. Um, the Witches of Fear. I think it's one of those cases where it's actually into eligibility leads for no apparent reason, but uh, I counted it for this year. All right. Just wanted to be sure for my personal list. So, anyways, my my five nominees for film editing are. All That Heaven Allows, Kiss Me Deadly, Marty, Rebel Without a Cause, and Ugetsu. Oh, that, that's a great list, too. Better than the Oscars. Yeah. Um, it's kind of odd that Marty wasn't nominated for film editing, given that it won Best Picture. Um, 
Yeah. I don't think at the time the connection between those two categories was as strong as it is today, but it's still weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was an incredibly difficult um, category for me to put together. Um, there was a lot of other films that I could have nominated, but yeah. Um, so next we have Best Sound. For best sound, my nominees are Kiss Me Deadly. Jack Solomon creates such a fascinating soundscape in this film. There is one particular effect that becomes, that, that appears near the end that almost single-handedly transforms the film into a horror movie. It, it is fantastic stuff. Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, Jacques Carrière, Roger, Roger Cosson, and Guy Michel Ang play a, an incredibly important part to me in the comedic engineering of this film. I would say their work is sort of the predecessor for someone like Bruno Dumont in films like Slack Bay, using sound as an incredibly important and sometimes not, sometimes realistic, sometimes anti-naturalistic element of comedy. Just from the opening of the film with the trains, I think you realize how important sound is to how the film functions. The Dambusters, Les Amond, Arald V. King, and Arthur Southgate, especially in the climax of the film, so much of it hinges on sound. And Sometimes it's not even the, the more bombastic effect, even though this entire film hinges on, you know, as the title suggests, busting a dam, um, or several dams in Germany during World War II. But to me, it's really the use of silence that really surprised me and delighted me. And that is, of course, the absence of sound is to me a, a part of sound design. Next, we have The Night of the Hunter, Stanford, Houghton, I have to say, I'm probably going to mispronounce a lot of names during this conversation. And I'm sorry, we haven't even gotten into most of the Japanese names. But no, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I, I did that same thing with um, the last ceremony. Um, so The Night of the Hunter is, you know, I think it's a masterpiece of a folk fairy tale of the Great Depression. It's it's almost shot like a silent film, but the sound plays a huge part in it. The passage midway through that focuses on the children's escape from their house is just a miraculous example of sound design to both distort our paradigms of reality and suggest something dreamy and threatening. Just what just not watch, but hear how a child song reverberates through a lonely river or just the way whistling is mixed into the soundtrack. It's great stuff. And finally, The Wages of Fear. William Robert Sivell. Again, silence is a really important part of this film. Tension, the quietness before an explosion. It is, it is 
perfect. This was a really difficult category. <laughs> Had a bunch of other films to that made my short list. And I would like to give a special shout out to Killer Skiss, which technically isn't the best sound, but it um, it works with its limitations very well. Even so, my five nominees I think are more technically perfect. So there they are. Nice. Um, so my nominees are The Desperate Hours, Kiss Me Deadly, Love Me or Leave Me, Oklahoma, and The Wages of Fear. Oh, I didn't watch The Desperate Hours, but I'm excited to one of these days. It's an underrated William Wyler movie, and I tried to make as much room for it as, in as many categories as possible. This is just a really good year. And it was tough. Yeah. But so next we have original oh, songs. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Best original songs are X category. Okay. So heads up. I only voted for films I watched. But there were two songs I wanted to include. I'm just going to say they're The Ballad of David Crockett and Unchained Melody, which was actually nominated for the Oscar. I didn't include them because I didn't watch the film. So I don't quite know what your content, how they are included in the film, which I think is an important part, at uh, least to me, to me personally, to judge this category. My nominees are Baby, Knock Me Off from It's Always Fair Weather, and, and Represent, Betty Comden and Adolf Green. It's just, it's just a great tune. All of this film, this film is stock full of original songs. I chose this one just because it's, I think it's the catchiest, maybe not the most complex, at least emotionally, but lyrically, it's just perfect. It's f- full of energy. And the way it's included in the film with Sid Cherise dancing, the, oh, it's, it's so great. Then there is Bella Nota, This is the Night from Lady and the Tramp. Sonny Burke and Peggy Lee wrote a number of songs for this film. Some of them a bit racist, but let's not talk about those. Bella Nota, This is the Night is, it's one of the best Disney love songs. I think it's, you know, the term iconic is very overused, but I think it's this one is legitimately iconic. Then there is I'll Never Stop Loving You from Love Me or Leave Me. Nicholas Potts and Sammy Khan wrote this original song for a film that is full of old standards because, again, it's a singer bio. It's the biopic of a singer, so a lot of the songs are pre-existing. But I'll Never Stop Loving You, I think, is a really good synthesization of the toxic love at the heart of the film. For those who don't know, and maybe go into this from expecting a, a bubbly musical biopic, this is really more of a portrait of an abusive relationship. And this song sort of crystallizes the, mal- the melancholy of it and the contradictions inherent to such a dynamic. More love. Love is a many splendored thing from Love is a many splendored thing. Sammy Finn and Paul Francis Webster wrote the only good thing <laughs> about this movie. <laughs> To me, it's the music. This song is very famous, justly so. I just wish the film was as good as the song. And finally, our final love is Love is the Tender Trap from The Tender Trap. Jimmy Van Austin and Sammy Khan again created this song that opens and closes the film. And as it's opening, I love how threatening it is, despite the, the melodious stones of Frank Sinatra. And then by the end, sort of the, the threatening, uh, <laughs> the threatening lyrics about being trapped in love, kind of reappeared now in a, with an optimistic, 
prism, an optimistic view. And that is interesting. So those are my five. This is not my favorite category, but I did my best. <clears throat> yeah, I understand that. Um, so my nominees are Baby Knock Me Out from It's Always Fair Weather, Yay! Bella Notte from Lady and the Tramp, I'll Never Stop Loving You from Love Me or Leave Me, <laughs> Love is a, a Many Splattered Thing from the movie of the same name, and Once Upon a Time There Was a Pretty Fly from The Night of Hunter. Oh, I didn't even think of that one, but you're right. Our lists are all, almost the same. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'll admit I'm not the best one, like, like tracking down like songs from this year, <clears throat> but I did my best. Yeah, I think the next category gives us a bit more to work with. Original score. Okay, people who know Japanese, get ready for a lot of mispronounces. Um, Hiroshima, Akira, Ifukube. This feels like a predecessor to his like to his legendary work in Godzilla. And I love the use of human vocals throughout the more plaintive string sections. The way they are mixed with ambient sound within the film is especially great. Then Lady and the Tramp, Oliver Wallace. I think the entire soundtrack for this film is great, even the racist song that's horrible in its specific way and you know it's, it's a film that despite of course talking animals you know it's still very much guided almost like one of the semi-silent Disney shorts so the music is extremely important to guiding our emotional trajectory through it and I think Oliver Wells did a great job then we have Samurai One Miyamoto Musashi Ikumadan this is, I love the main theme of this, which repeats throughout the three films. And though my heart, you know, I, the other ones, are, the sequels are closest to my heart, but this is the one where all those musical motifs originated. So it's here. The Man with the Golden Arm, Umber Bernstein has created a masterpiece of jazz scoring in this thing. You know, sometimes it's, honestly ugly to hear. Sometimes it's riveting and beautiful and asymphonic and jagged and just shocking. It's just brilliant. It's as full of contrast as the three lead performances in the middle of the film. And finally, Ugetsu, Fumio Ayasaka, Tamekichi Mochizuki, and Ishiro Saito for their evocative, dreamy, slightly ritualistic minimalism, especially in the section where the two couples are fleeing war. It's a haunt, it, the sound is haunting and it does a great deal to make this film, I think part of the horror canon, just on the basis of its score. So those are my five. Yeah, definitely so. Um... My nominees are All That Heaven Allows by Frank Skinner, The Big Combo by David Raxson, the great David Raxson, East of Eden by Leonard Rosenman, The Man with the Golden Arm by um, 
sorry. Um, Elmer Bernstein. Yeah. I don't know why. But, um, and The Wages of Fear by Jorge Arnick. Wait, what was the last one? I'm sorry. Um, The Wages of Fear. Oh, yeah. Sorry. It's a great line. This is a really weird year for, for scores. Like, I had a long list of 20 plus films. Yeah. Um, so next we have best makeup and hairstyling. Which didn't exist at this time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but we're doing it. Um, so my nominees are um, Hiroshima. It's the only one I can find anyone credited for them, at least on IMDb. But... Okay, this film uses a lot of extras that are actually from Hiroshima, and some of them have real scars, and others are actors with scars. And it's there are tableaus in this film that look like Bosch paintings, like depictions of hell. And to me, makeup is a, a very important factor in it. I'm thinking, for example, of Isuzo Yamada, covered in ash or hair flying everywhere. And, uh, and as we see the days progress in the immediate aftermath of the bomb, sort of the, the gradual disintegration of bodies, it's, it's harrowing stuff. The film almost gave me nightmares. Then we have the Phoenix City story. The work of Mel Burns and Dan Kirk is surprisingly graphic for, for, what, it, for what is essentially a, an almost, I would say, sanctimonious appeal to arms and law and order it's again it's very bloody very sweaty and that's probably what i liked best how grimy and oily the world it portrays feels thanks to the makeup then we have the virgin queen the work of ben nye alan turpin and perk westmore develops what was already created in the 1939 betty davis elizabeth I film but it takes it to even more grotesque extremes. It's both beautiful and ugly, which is a combination I love. Then we have The Wages of Fear, for which George Boubin created again, incredible variations on exhaustion and sweat and grime. And of course, for one of its most famous sequences, a body covered in oil. And at last we have Ugetsu, Yoshia Fukuyama and Rizuanai created a panoply of 16th century historical looks, but they also play with supernatural in creating this phantasmagorical noble woman that is living, well, living, <laughs> that is existing in a sort of fake serenity that is to me really expressed in her ghostly makeup. It's really good stuff. It's not extremely showy, but to me, it works wonderfully. Those are my five nominees. Nice. Um, my nominees are Love Me or Leave Me, Oklahoma, The Rose Tattoo, Ugetsu, and Virgin Queen. Okay. Um... So next we have best costume design. My favorite category. Um, 
so these are only five nominees. Of course, in, at this time, the category is divided in black and white and color, but I combined the two because, again, you gave me one category. So just know there is a long, long list of other possibilities <laughs> that I won't divulge. My nominees are Guys and Dolls, Irene Sheriff, Ben's Modern Fashions to a theatrical, to a, a very artificial theatricality that works wonderfully with patterns and especially very rich reds. I love the, diff the differences in moral hierarchies that you see throughout the social landscape of the film. It's just great and super stylish and as a feast for the eyes. Rebel Without a Cause, Moss Mabry created this iconic look of the white t-shirt jeans and the red jacket that in some ways it synthesizes, but it also creates this mythical image of the teenager in American cinema. I don't think at the time one would have realized just how iconic and really legendary the sort of looks Moss Mabry created ended up being. Speaking of legendary looks, the seven-year itch gets in here mostly for one dress. Travel and Charles Lemaire created the costumes for this film, including that dreamy wonder of pleated champagne cream white that Marilyn Monroe wears and the skirts flow, and it's just one of the great moments in the movie. Then, then we have to catch a thief, where for which Eddie's had created. A veritable rainbow of Rococo fashions for the final extravaganza of a masquerade ball. But even beyond that, the costumes are perfect at using glamour and current fashion to delineate relationships between, between characters and just create this sensual world where you want to reach out and touch and you want to be part of it. Despite the gold lame absurdity that Grace Kelly wears at the end. I think my favorite costume is probably her ice blue chiffon dress. One of the coldest, but also most erotic depictions of desire on film. And finally, the Pickwick Papers, for which Beatrice Dawson dove deep into Victorian fashions and delivered a wardrobe that is both historically accurate, at least, you know, within the parameters of 1950s cinema, but also twists the weirdness of those historical fashions and individualizes each character and makes them into living caricatures. I especially love the work on the man, and it's very easy when you're doing male costume design to, especially on something like a Victorian movie, it's very easy to make them all dressed very similarly, almost indistinguishably because it's always the same base of, you know, a suit. It's always a suit, but Beatrice Dawson differentiates these colorful characters, even though her film is in black and white. It's amazing work. Those are my five nominees. This is an incredibly difficult uh, category to put together again. Um, this year is like uniquely just overflowing with good choices to choose from. I had to make some last-minute cuts, but I settled on All That Heaven Allows um, by Bill Thomas, Irene Sharaf for Guys and Dolls, Trevia for The Seven-Year Rich, Edith Head 
floor to catch the Grace Kelly's everything Grace Kelly wears really defines like that hot girl summer vibe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the one that everyone talks about. Yeah, um, she would have dominated Instagram if she were Yeah. If that, if that character existed today, she would have been an Instagram influencer. Um and finally, um I'm going to pronounce these names as, as well as I can. Tadeo Kenosho and Shima Yoshizan for Ugetsu. One of the, I think, the first Japanese film to be nominated for Best Costume Design at the Oscars, at the real Oscars, not our alternative Oscars. Yeah. It's a good, um, it's a really um, inspired pick for them, and it gets represented even more in my personal um, lineup as we go forward. So look forward to that. Yeah, mine too. Expect a lot of Ugetsu. Next, we have an equally rich category, Best Art Direction. Okay. Lots of names. <laughs> All that heaven allows, Alexander Gollitson, Eric Orban, Russell a. Gaussman and Julia Heron created this contrast, this very almost primordial contrast between pleasure and social repression through the characters' houses. You really see suburban American life depicted as a sort of prison, while bohemian log cabins are the pleasure materialized in a space. You can put this film on mute and just watch the relationship between spaces and get the gist of it. That's how perfect these designs are. Daddy Longlegs is the first nominee that gets in here mostly for Dream Ballet, which are very popular in 1950s musicals. Lyle, Lyle R. Wheeler, John DeQueer, Walter M. Scott, and Paul S. Fox create a panoply of spaces, some of them really interesting theatrical spaces, like a sketched street, but explode into a giant human-sized sketch. It, it's really interesting stuff. More interesting than a film. Uh, and I also love a set of luggage that turns into a closet. This film is very materialistic, so there's a lot of luxury porn to whoever's into it. Then there is Oklahoma, Oliver Smith, Joseph C. Wright, and F. Kyo Gleason at to work on a musical that is mostly defined by its open spaces. But because I think the sets are always compared to that openness, they're even more important. And I love how they realize the dream ballet by embracing the abstract theatricality. How do you present a ballroom in, a, in this set? Well, you make the silhouette of a staircase and a black chandelier and you have a ballroom and the rest of it is just abstract imagery of the great plains and the sky at twilight. It's really great stuff. I wish I loved the film more, but I love its sets. Then there is The Night of the Hunter. Hilliard M. Brown and Alfred E. Spencer again are come back to 1920s silent cinema and a tradition of expressionism in America, making its way into Hollywood. 
I love especially the beginning of this film when despite being set in the Great Depression, the sets are just vague enough, just fairy tale simple enough and almost dichotomies between good and evil materialized in spaces. Either the bottom of a lake or a bedroom full of sharp angles. Again, you can mute the film and get the gist of its interpersonal dynamics through the spaces. And, you know, and I love the hyper-artificiality of it. Even the river is clearly a set, and yet it's great because of it. And finally, speaking of rivers and abstraction and fairy tale, who gets to? Masatsugo, Ashimoto, Kisakuito, and Kosaburo Nakajima. Uh, I love the simplicity of that river in a fog bank, but also the worn, torn world. It's really a film about war, and the production design is very important in creating that feeling of a universe on the brink of destruction through human violence. And then you get to the house of a ghostly lady and everything is just too perfect. And that is part of the magic of that set design is how it can make beauty seem eerie and scary. And those are my nominees and there were a lot of other possible choices, <laughs> I have to say. Speaking of like a lot of choices, um... My nominees are All That Heaven Allows, Art Direction by Alexander Willington and Eric Orbaum, Set Decoration by Russell, Gos Russell A. Gosman and Julia Heron. I don't think you can like, come across the Douglas Sirk movie from this year and not at least consider it for production design. Um, you'll see a lot of that in the next episode, which is big film, which is big film from 1956. That's all I'll say about that. Um, and then we have East of Eden, um, art direction by James Basevi and Malcolm C. Burt, set decoration by George, uh, George James Hopkins and William Wallace. Um, and um, this is one of two James Dean movies from, 19, from this year. And I think they do a really great job of capturing the time period and capturing both the successes and failures of the lead character's view of the American dream and his own. And just his um, overall internal struggle throughout the movie is well captured through the production design. And then there's Picnic. And speaking of films that you can watch on mute, I think this is one you can watch on mute. And <laughs> maybe so you should watch on mute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have to listen to the dialogue. You can just enjoy them. Another really well brought to life time period, at least aesthetically. Um, the movie is not good, but great set design, beautiful set design. Um, to Catch a Thief, it's a perfect dreamlike escape into Paris. And because it's a Hitchcock movie, of course, it has beautiful production values. And Ugetsu, everything you said about Ugetsu, I feel like I should just repeat. It's just an incredible ghost story 
gold through the 16th century. I have to say, even though my, I love your mention of the Casa Thief because oh, that's the film where you want to you look at those sets and you want to have a vacation in that film. And here's another one where I had like too much too much material to work with. Um, here we are splitting the cinematography categories into two. Um, and we're starting with best color cinematography. So, for best color cinematography, my nominees are All That Heaven Allows, Russell Matty. It's a miracle of color. Again, the dichotomies aren't especially complex. Warm autumnal colors tend to signify pleasure in contrast with the cold world outside that within suburbia is internalized. It's beautiful and this time when I watched it, I also watched it for the Hit Me With Your Best Shot series at the Film Experience. I was especially delighted by its use of very deep inky shadows in contrast with all those rich colors. Speaking of very rich colors, there is House of Bamboo by Joseph MacDonald who gets to Purview Japan through an exoticized Hollywood lens, but mixes this very Western view of Japan with film noir elements, but here rendered in bright colors. And it's a fascinating mixture of references and techniques. Strategic Air Command, William H. Daniels and Thomas Tutwiler um, their work made me fall in love with airplanes, which is not something I am especially attracted to visually, but I have to commend the film that submerges me so much with, into its characters' passions that I learned to love something by looking at it through their eyes. And that's what this film did with airplanes, their shape, and just the majesty of them gracefully soaring through the sky. The air sequences in the film are just beautiful. Summertime, Jack Ildiard makes Venice beautiful, which isn't difficult, but the way that David Lean's film balances colors, especially bright oranges and reds, is beautiful and a wonderful translation of its lead characters emotional journey through this summery love affair that is as temporary and ephemeral as summer itself. And then there is The Man from Laramie, one of two, I think, Anthony Mann Westerns from 1955. Charles Lang is the cinematographer and he expands man's vocabulary, visual vocabulary into the idioms of cinemascope and it is ravishing. A lot of Westerns at this time were still shot in studio, but a lot of The Man from Laramie is shot on location and there is a rugged quality to it. A scene where a fight breaks out amidst cows and then amidst a salt field is just ravishing. It reminded me of all things of The Power of the Dog from, from, you know, the, from last year 
and it's shots of clouds of dust rising from from cattle and framing these majestic masculine figures that are both mythical and threatening and horrible all at the same time. There were a lot of other choices I could have made, but those are my five. Nice. I love all those choices. Um, I don't think I've seen um, all that I have. I don't think I've seen Strategic Air Command or the Anthony Man Westerns. Um, I'm excited to see the Anthony Man Westerns, though. Um, as um, well as Joseph McDonald's work on um, House of Bamboo. House of Bamboo, sorry. Um, I'm excited to see those films, but the ones I did decide on are All That Heaven Allows by Russell Petty, East of Eden by Ted D. McCord, Rebel Without a Cause by Ernest Haller, Summertime by Jack Kildyard, and To Catch a Thief by Robert Brooks. All very beautiful films. None of them a bad choice. This series is full of incredible choices. And um, looking at the Academy's list, I don't think they did a bad job on putting this one together. I can understand. Um, I don't think I've seen a man called Peter, but I just think the others were pretty <laughs> good. I mean, I, I think, yes, I agree that all of them are pretty good. But I have to, <laughs> to complain about the Academy's choices because because of their nomination, I watched The Man Called Peter, and I'd rather not have that in my life. I did not. I did not see that one. Um, Whoever uh, wants to to subject yourself to a two hour sermon, go ahead. <laughs> um, I'm kind of surprised they didn't nominate Picnic, though, considering they that James Wong Howe won for one of his black-white movies that year, The Rose Tattoo, and he shot Picnic, and considering how well that did, it's just kind of surprising that wasn't nominated. Especially because, at least in my mind, it's one of the best elements in Picnic. It's the cinematography. Yeah. Again, um, just watch the film on mute. Don't listen yeah. to the dialogue. <laughs> Awful let, let um, William Holden just be centered lab and nothing else. That's all he needs to be. Yeah. Uh, the only reason you should ever have it uh, with the volume is whenever Rosalind Russell appears on screen. Because she's but the then best you m- movie. But then you might become deaf. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, she does do a lot of uh, shrieking <laughs> in that movie. So next we have Best Black and White Cinematography, in which there was also a lot of good choices to choose from. This list was so difficult to make. I wanted to have seven nominees. Anyway, <laughs> my nominees are Killer's Kiss, Stanley Kubrick did the cinematography for his sophomore picture. And it is gorgeous. He was a, a professional photographer before he became a director, and it really shows. He had to work with a very limited budget and shot mostly on location in New York City. And the film is just a miracle of independent film noir from the mid-50s. It oscillates between cinema verite and this 
almost haunting horror film aesthetic, especially in a scene set amidst a bunch of dismembered mannequins of women. It's it's great stuff. And the way he frames windows and mirrors is just oh, beautiful. Then there is Othello by Arston Wells, which has a very long list of cinematographers. G.R. Aldo, Ancise Brizzi, Giorgio Fanto, Alberto Fusi, and Oberdan Troiani. All of them worked in this very chaotic production, creating an acid trip of expressionistic shadows. It's just riveting stuff. Sometimes a bit inconsistent because some shots were... Because the same scene can contain shots from different continents sometimes and different years. And, you know, this film was very chaotically shot, but the end results are just gorgeous, so full of inky blacks and architectural shadows. It's amazing. Then we have The Big Combo by one of the best cinematographers working in Hollywood at this time, John Alton. Maybe one of the most sensuously shot films I've ever seen. The shadows seem to caress and lick the bodies of people. It's both erotic and deadly. Honestly, I, it's, it, is, it was incredible watching this film. I wish I could watch it on the big screen because John Alton's work is just incredible. And then we have The Night of the Hunter. Uh, I was saying then we have The Night of the Hunter, cinematography by Stanley Cortez. Again, maybe I'm really into the developments of expressionistic American cinema in the 1950s because this list is mostly made of that. Apart from, of course, the last film, which is Ugetsu, cinematography by Kazuo Miyagawa. Again, what more can be said? Just the tracking shots that replicate the motion of painted scrolls. Just genius stuff. Those are my five. That is a very good lineup. Um, sorry, I was just dealing with something. Um, but um, five I came up with are the Desperate Hours, Lee Garns, Hiroshima by Shunichiro Nakayo and Suzuma Orashima, Kiss Me Deadly by Ernest Laszlo, The Night of the Hunter by Stanley Cortez and Ugetsu by Kazuo Miyagawa, whom I previously gave an award to for his work on Akira Kurosawa's uh, masterpiece, Rashomon. So, what is the next category? Um, uh, best cartoon short film. Okay. Um... I, I only nominated American films because I was having trouble deciding what was eligible of the international films. Same. So, so these are all American films. Um, 
I think one of them is Canadian, anyway. There is Blinkety Blank by Norbert McLaren, which is an optic experiment in creating animation on the basis of the, the, the impression of light that you get when you blink, hence the name. It's experimental stuff, it's gorgeous, it's trippy, it's all that I love about animation shorts. Then it, there is Designs on Jerry by Joseph Barbera and William Hanna. It's a Hanna-Barbera cartoon from Tom and Jerry, but this one sort of takes a, a weird metatextual bend when the plans for a mousetrap, there is a huge root burp, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it, anyway. A very complex machine. The 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 sketches for it gain life. So you have this wonderful bend of the logic of animation and of the sort of paradigms of reality within the Tom and Jerry cartoons. I just loved it. And I didn't I don't usually watch Tom and Jerry cartoons, so I was very surprised by this one's inventiveness. Then there is Gumbasia by Gumbasia, whatever, by Art Clocky, which is Again, just a, an experimental experiment in plasticine and gummy looking forms clashing into each other with rapid fire editing. It's just a kaleidoscope of shapes. And I love it. Should, it must be great to watch this high or scary. Uh, then there is One Froggy Evening by Jack Jones, which even thinking about it still makes me laugh. It's, very mean-spirited, like a lot of the best Warner Brothers cartoons from this time. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have seen clips from this, uh, even if they haven't seen the film with the singing frog. It's, it, it's just great. Just watch it. It's very short. All these are shorts. Just go on YouTube and watch it. It's great. And finally, by Tex Avery, about a man who needs silence to not explode, literally, and goes to a silent retreat and gets the worst neighbors in the world. And for, for animated films, where obviously the visuals and the animation are the center of it, it was fascinating to watch uh, one that is based upon the disruption of sound. So those are my five nominees. Nice. Um, so I just, I only have four uh, nominees here and I just had to go with three of the four Oscar nominees um, just because of my limited time um, in real life, but um, my nominees are The Legend of Rock Five Points, No Hunting, One Froggy Evening, and Speedy Gonzalez. Um, I, I also loved No Hunting. Actually, a lot of my also rounds were Donald Duck shorts. Next category, what is it? Next category is Best International Film. Okay, I have two lineups because I have to ask you something. Are we doing sort of the five eligible films or five international um, my, films? My my um general ruling is that um um there um um 
uh, films that are um, released from this year, the nineteen fifty five, independently of being on the eligibility list. Um, doesn't have to be on the eligibility list. Just released this year. Okay. I I go by that criteria because I assume that is similar to what the Academy would have ruled at the time. I'm not sure. It 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 really depends on the year. <laughs> it's it's very. You know, Juan Carlos Ojano does the One Inch Barrier podcast, and I was just talking to him the other day about how during the 50s, the criteria for this category, while it was still an honorary award, was just bizarre. So, okay, I'm going then to nominate five films released in the world in 1955. My nominees would then be Floating Clouds from Japan, Samikyo Naruse film. Naruse is perhaps one of the great, not forgotten, but overshadowed Japanese masters. He's a bit overshadowed by the trio of major post-war filmmakers, Ozu, Kurosawa, and Mugitoguchi. But I think his realist melodramas are the stuff of heartbreaking dreams. Then there is Lala Montes by Max Ophul, the French-German co-production. That does include some dialogue in English, but it's mostly French and German, so I counted it in. It's a bizarre take on biography as exploitation, literally as a circus. As all Ophul's films, it's a ravishing visual experiment. And I think it was at the time the most expensive European film made to date. So there's that. Um, then Ordet. I don't know if that's pronounced correctly from Denmark, a Carl Theodor Dreyer film, which is one of my favorite films of all time. It's a deeply spiritual film. I am an atheist, but I do enjoy exploring spiritual cinema and Dreyer's films very much so, especially this one that hinges on a study of faith. It's, you need to be very patient with it. It's very still, very languid and purposely paced. But to me, it all culminates in one of the greatest moments of all cinema. Literally miraculous. Then there is Pater Panchali from India. Satyajit Rai's first feature film is one of the great films ever made and it's the beginning of the Apu trilogy and honestly I've written an article about Satyajit Ray some time ago and I feel like I don't have anything new to say about him so many things have been written about Pater Panchali and it's just a masterpiece just go watch it it's beautiful it's much easier to watch than I think some of its reputation may suggest and then there is Smiles of a Summer Night from Sweden Ingmar Bergman's period comedy, period sex comedy, that is one of his early masterpieces. Early, well, he'd been doing films for about 10 years at this point, but still early for him. So those are my, those are my five. Nice. Um, so my nominees are Diabolique from France, Floating Clouds from Japan, or Debt from Denmark, Peter Panchali from India, and Smiles of a Summer Night from Sweden. Oh, we almost have the same lineup. That's fun. 
So next we have best adapted screenplay. A lot of the great films this year were adapted screenplays. Um, my nominees are The Man from Laramie, Philip Jordan and Frank Burt. Basically created what feels like the intersection of Greek tragedy and Shakespeare, but um, set within a Western milieu. And it works, it's incredibly cruel and nasty and matter of fact and frank, and it just surprised me. It was like a, a, a hammer to the solar plexus, just, just great stuff. Then there is a Knight of the Hunter, James Aggie, creating this primordial fight between good and evil through a child's point of view during the Great Depression. It's horror-tinged, and its horror comes a lot from moral hypocrisy and one of the greatest films of all time. Then there is The Pickwick Papers, Noel Langley adapted Dickens' episodic humorous novel into a very picaresque journey through an array of odd characters and Victorian social mores. I love how we kept faithful to Dickens' weird linguistic quirks in this particular film, like in this particular book, like the character of Mr. Jingle, and still made it work as cinema within a cinematic structure. It's, it's really surprising because when you look at Dickensian cinema, it's almost, it's almost always very depressing or serious minded, but this is, takes a, a humorous book and adapts it with all the frothy energy it deserves. Then there is The Wages of Fear, Henri-Georges Clouseau and Jérôme Geronimi adapt this book, which also then resulted in a remake in the 1970s, Sorcerer. But uh, what can we say about this film? It's just, it's just a masterpiece of suspense. It should be taught in film school if it's not already. And part of it is its perfect structure and how economic it is, how it establishes all the characters in such perfect manner that it can have huge stretches of silence that hinge on the tension of these contrasting personalities stuck literally in a closed space and in a perilous, deadly ticking bomb. They're basically driving bombs. And it's just such an elegant screenplay for such a cruel film. I love it. And then Ugetsu, Matsutaro Kawaguchi, Yoshikata Yoda, and Isamu Yoshi adapt a bunch of 18th century tales into this 16th century set film that, again, basically has four independent storylines. Each of them can sort of be paired off. It's the journey of two couples through a war-torn Japan. And just the ability to make all of this below the 100-minute duration. And everything flows so beautifully. It is very symbolic. It's, I think, one of the great anti-war films. 
because again, it approaches its themes in a very profound manner, but very obliquely. And like a lot of Jidaigeki films from this period, it's just wonderful. And honestly, there were a lot of other films I could have mentioned because again, a lot of the great films from 1955 were adapted screenplays, but still, those are my five. I wish I could have 10. Um, those are all great choices, and I struggled a couple points um, to settle on a five because it was such a good year. Um, the five I settled on were Bad Day at Black Rock, used to be Journey to Italy, Marty, and The Night of the Hunter. You guys have no idea, you people listening, you have no idea how difficult it was for me to leave a journey to Italy off of this slide. <laughs> but there's only five. Anyway, next, I imagine it's original screenplay. Yep. Okay. So, my nominees are All That Heaven Allows, Peggy Thompson, Edna Elvey, and Ari Lee. It's always fair weather. Uh, let me explain. Uh, I actually think All That Evan Loves isn't the greatest screenplay, but the way it's presented in the film, it's perfect. Supposedly, Douglas Sirk struggled a bit with this script, but the final result is just a visceral, con- a visceral crystallization of this anxiety about conformity and how social pressures kill the spirit, basically. And it's all melodramatic and sutsy and wonderful. It's always fair weather, Betty Comden and Adolf Green. I will tell you, I was not expecting this film to be this cynical or this purposefully invested in psychology, in psychological character building, because this is an MGM musical. And you don't expect those things from an MGM musical from 1955. And yet, this is really a great study on post-war malaise and how a lot of men return from war feeling without purpose, scarred in ways that weren't visible and that weren't violently apparent. It's, It's great work. And especially compared to other musicals from this year, like Daddy Long Legs, it is a very sharp critique of the consumerism of Eisenhower here in America. Now there is Love Me or Leave Me, Daniel Fuchs and Isabel Lannert again. I, this is another film that surprised me because of how cynical it was, because of how it bent the musical biopic into a study of toxic love, of an abusive relationship. And as someone who has, <clears throat> who has been in an abusive relationship, it was very, very harrowing to watch it. Rebel Without a Cause, Nicholas Ray, Irving Schulman, and Stuart Stern invented the teenager in American cinema in this film. It's the maximum expression of teen angst in cinema, I think. And sometimes it's indulgent, sometimes it's a bit self-conscious about it, but it just works in part because it attunes its writing to the wild hormonal 
insecurities and wild emotions of its characters. It feels like a story teenagers would tell about themselves. And I think that is a very honest depiction of a theme that can often be looked at with a condescending look. Finally, there is The Far Country by Borden Chase, another Anthony Mann film about the struggles between individualism and collective action in the world that is developing from wilderness into law and order. It surprised me how politically complex this film was, how even today I think a lot of its subjects, a lot of its themes are very pertinent and still very discussed. It's, and you know, in terms of character building, it's right in terms of structure, it's lean, mean, and just mechanically perfect, like a well-oiled Swiss clock. So those are my nominees. I have to say this category was easier to, to reduce to five nominees than the Adapted Screenplay one. Did you feel the same? Mm, kind of, sort of. Um, I did consider putting in One Froggy Evening kind of oh. for the novelty. Um, but the five I settled on are All That Heaven Allows, written by Peg Fenwick or Tom, Peg Fenwick Thompson, Anna Ellie, and Harry Lee. Um, Hiroshima, written by Yasutaro Yagi. It's Always Fair Weather, written by Betty Compton and Adolf Green. Um, Mojir Hulo's Holiday, written by Jacques Pati and Henry Marquette. And Rebel Without a Cause, written by Stuart Stern and Nicholas Ray. And we Irving Shulman. I like that most of our lineups have at least one common nominee. Yeah. Um, so next we have we're into the acting categories now. And we start with Best Supporting Actress. A complicated category because there were so many great choices. Um, and I have to say apologies to Joe Van Fleet who gave two incredible performances this year but ended up out of my ballot. I'm sorry. Um, my nominees are Dol Dolores Gray for It's Always Fair Weather for playing... Faye Dunaway Network before Faye Dunaway Network for being the Effie Trinket of 1950s New York. It's a brilliant satirical performance. It's mad, and but yet elegant and poised. It's a perfect distillation of social commentary while still being entertaining and still being a coherent screen presence. And that's not easy to do. That's a lot of stuff put into her shoulder, put on her shoulders, and she delivers. And she makes it look effortless, which is the most amazing part. Then there is Celeste Ohm in The Tender Trap, proving once again that even the most mediocre film can be elevated if you just add Celeste Ohm. And she continues to be a champion at playing very conservatively written, working woman archetypes, like in The Gentleman's Agreement, and somehow through her acting alone, overcoming the sexism that's inherent to the writing, 
she's sexy, knowing, and curiously ambivalent. It's a very adult performance, full of complexities and charm, and never overplayed. It's like watching a it's like watching a master musician playing a Stradivarius script. Then there is Dorothy Malone in Battle Cry. I'm sure you will talk about Dorothy Malone in your next episode because there was no actress that was better at playing horniness than Dorothy Malone in the 40s and 50s. And Battle Cry really allows her to play very horny, almost tragically so, for Tab Hunter. Who can blame her for being horny for Tab Hunter in 1955? And, but still, Battlecry is a very weird film because it's a war epic that tries to be against war epics. It only includes very few battle sequences. It's mostly all about the melodrama, about the man's love lives and their anxieties. And Dorothy Malone plays a married woman who has an affair with a young strapping soldier. And she's great at almost turning the film into a comedy, into a sex farce, but then in her last scene, twisting it into tragic yearning. She's in very little of the film, but it's such powerful work and so tonally complicated, amazing. Then I have Kinuyo Tanaka for Ugetsu. She plays, well, Kinuyo Tanaka is one of the great Japanese art actresses from this time and also a director. A lot of her films are being restored right now, which is very exciting, the films she directed. But anyway, in Ugetsu, she plays the wife. If you've seen the film, she is the wife who's left behind and who is attacked by a group of soldiers. And it's a very raw performance while still negotiating levels of realism and artifice with the film's very theatrical ghost story, painted scroll-esque aesthetic. I love actors who can solve these complex problems of tone. And Kinyo Tanaka does it well, and she just shatters your heart with how she portrays suffering. There's a reason why Mizoguchi went back to her as an actress. She understood the cinema like nobody else. And finally, there's Shelley Winters in The Night of the Hunter, delivering what's probably my favorite Shelley Winters performance of all time as this archetypical mother who is destroyed by a great evil in the shape of a strange man that comes into the kids' lives. Um, it's a great performance, surprisingly sexual, sexually frank for 1955. And again, balancing, it's a balancing act between extreme stylization and very raw and realistically depicted emotion especially the scene where she's rejected by her new husband or the scenes where she's in a religious fervor. They are just explosive and incredible. And she really is an impression because she disappears after the film's first act. But, oh, how do you feel her absence? Those are my five. And another category that could have had 10 nominees and would have been fine. Um, so my nominees are Agnes Moorhead and all that from the Wows, Joe Van Fleet and Lisa Beaton, Betsy Blair and Marty, 
Lillian Gish in The Night of the Hunter, and Natalie Wood in Rebel Without a Cause. We overlapped with Oscars quite a bit, so you were happy with this lineup. Um, yeah. Um, I, um, I thought it was a pretty solid lineup, mostly. Um, and none of it then stood out to me as egregiously bad in any real way. I mean, I would argue that Peggy Lee's a bit bad, but you didn't include her. So. Yeah. Anyway, next is supporting actor. I, I think, right? Yeah. Okay. And this, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. Say what? What were you gonna say? I was just gonna say this. Um, the five I went with was surprisingly easier than I thought. Really? Because this was the most difficult of the acting categories for me, I which mean, is there, weird. There were other good performances, but. The five I ultimately settled on felt pretty solid to me. Yeah. I, I had a very weird experience of finding Best Supporting Actor the most competitive category in my dream Oscars, which never happens because Supporting Actor is usually the most boring acting category. But 1955 is full of surprises. My nominees were Richard Conte in The Big Combo. It's a perfect oily, slippery villain performance. I almost didn't want to nominate him because he's so good in the film that he sort of puts the rest of the cast to shame because none of them are at his level and he sort of unbalances the film. But he's just so perfect as this gangster whose sexually abusive relationship with his gangster mole is so central to the film. Then I have Peter Cushing in The End of the Affair, the early version of the same novel that would end up giving us the 1999 film that got Julianne Moore her first Best Actress nomination. Peter Cushing plays the cuckolded husband of the lead character, of the lead female character here played by Deborah Carr. And he makes someone that could be very forgettable fairly negligible into the most interesting presence on screen, full of mysteries and unspoken contradictions. It's just great. Peter Cushing was such a great character actor. Next, I have Raymond Massey for East of Eden for playing James Dean's father, whose moral rectitude sort of shatters his son's lives in the film. It's, a, it's very difficult to engage with this character, to relate to them, or to even understand their actions. But Raymond Massey makes it all cohere, and he makes it heartbreaking. Fin- uh, no, not finally. Then there is also Salminio in Rabble Without a Cause, playing this vision of queer teen introspection and almost implosion. His scenes with Jimmy Dean are, are just irritating for me in terms of what, what I think 
out when I think about American cinema from this time. And finally, we have another actor playing a high schooler, Sidney Poitier in Blackboard Jungle. Is, this was his big breakout role, and I can't see why, because I, I can't imagine how you can, well, he had other roles. Anyway, I can't imagine how you can see this film and not think this man is a star, because wow. Wow, he's a star in this thing. Um, the film is very much trying to talk about race, but written by very white writers. And still, Poitier works through the textual problems and just delivers a powerhouse performance that is full of ambiguities, that is full of doubt, doubt from the viewer when looking at him. And just pulls it off, he's riveting. I wish the film were about him and not an inspiring teacher story starring Glenn Ford because Poitier is just so much more interesting. And those are my five. And I could have really nominated like up to 15 people in this category because there were a lot of deserving fellows this year. So um, my choices for Best Supporting Actor are Sidney Poitier in Blackboard Jungle, Yay! Robert Ryan in Bad Day at Black Rock, Raymond Massey in East of Eden, Jack Lemmon in Mr. Roberts, pretty much the best thing about that movie, and Sal Video in Double Without a Cause. We have three in common. So next is Best Actress. Always the best category. Yes. So, um, some years, so, some time ago, I did uh, all my dream ballots for best actress according to eligibility on Twitter. But since then, I've watched a bunch more 1955 films. So that list is inaccurate now. My nominees are Doris Day and Love Me or Leave Me. I love Doris Day as a dramatic actress. And this film showcases how her, her technique that made her so good as a very intuitive comedic actress could result in shockingly naturalistic, dramatic acting. You're expecting a very mannered, stiff performance from her, at least some, I think some of my prejudices about who Doris Day was as an actress sort of informed my 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 attitude going into this film and then she just delivers the two of the force love me or leave me just watch it for her and james cagney they're incredible then i have susan hayward in i'll cry tomorrow susan hayward who i seldom like i have to say i think she tended to overact very badly <laughs> a lot of times but but when she's right she's incredible like here or in Smash Up History of a Woman, the story of a woman. In Al Quarto Marsh, she plays a self-destructive alcoholic singer. And she is great. She's great at imploding and exploding. And I especially recommend her scenes with Jovan Fleet as her mother. Despite my caveats, nobody could break apart on screen like Susan Awards. Then there is Cassie Hepburn in Summertime. This was at the height of her spinster period in movies where people get, kept casting her as these spinsters looking for love. 
And I think this is the best of that period, this portrait of an American woman in Venice falling in love during this very temporary summery vacation. It's, it's heartbreaking stuff. It's very touching. And it's surprisingly underplayed for an actress who sometimes could fall into brittle mannerism. She's so loose, so effortless. Someone who's not effortless, but is still magnificent is Anna Magnani in The Rose Tattoo. She somehow carried all the fire that she had in her Italian movies and applied them to an Hollywood model and made it work. This is a very performance performance. It's very big, very showy, very Oscar clippy. And it still somehow feels like a frank depiction of this particular woman, this particular widow inflamed by desire and fear and a bunch of other jumbled emotions storming on inside of her. And finally, my last nominee is Jane Wyman in All That Heaven Allows for internalizing melodrama and being the perfect figure at the center of what I consider Douglas Hirk's most perfect and most exemplary melodrama. She's just incredible watching her slowly open up throughout the film under Rock Hudson's attention. She's not doing a lot, but just the way she looks at him changes so much. Just the way she moves through space. It's quiet and understated and somehow perfectly appropriate for this explosive, garishly colored film. Those are my five. Nice. This is a really good year for Best Actress. And um, there's only one um, overlap between the real lineup and mine. And that is Catherine Hepburn in Summertime. My other nominees yeah. are Jane Wyman in All That Allows, Julie Harris in East of Eden, Ingrid Bergman in Journey to Italy, and Doris Day in Love Me or Leave Me. Do you consider Aries a lead? I kind of consider her supporting, but I guess she campaigned as lead, right? Um, yeah. I guess you could consider her supporting. I think she is important enough to the story to qualify as a lead. Mm-hmm. She yeah. also had another performance this year in um, I Am a Movie Camera, yeah. which um, I think is a straightforward adaptation of the play. No, okay. Uh, I Am Camera is... So it, it, it's this version of Christopher Usherwood's memoir which then was adapted into a play, which then was adapted into a movie, which then was adapted into a musical play, which then became Cabaret. Uh-huh. She, was, she was the original film Sally Bowles. All right. Um... Oh. Um, so, yeah, so those are my top five. Um, so next we have Best Leading Actor in which it's usually um, 
any good um, film lover's job to do to make a better lineup than the actual lineup. But I think this was actually a really good year for Best Actor, and I really like the lineup they actually came up with. So much so that I, I only disagree with one of the choices and putting somebody I, else. Yeah, I I found myself expecting mediocrity because you know, the Oscars always are good at delivering that. But, but but yeah, I agree with you. When exploring this this best actor lineup, the Academy did really solid choices. This is maybe one of the best lineups they've ever come up with in this category. Um, only two performances of that lineup are present in my lineup, but still, it's great choices. And one of them was really hard to leave out. And that one is, was James Cagney, who's not here, I'm sorry. But he was great in Love Me or Leaving. Anyway, my nominees are Ernest Bornine for Marty. It's the only place where Marty appears in my ballot, but it is difficult to argue against the mastery of Ernest Bornine in this role. It's the perfect, it's the perfect blend to me of, of, of role and performer, performance and performer. Um, yeah, it just works. It's self-pitying and sad and somehow very grounded and lived in. It's, it's maybe, is, it's probably the crowning achievement of his career. And I can completely understand why he won the Oscar. He's that good. Even I didn't like Marty that much. As I have to give it to him. So then there is James Dean, not in East of Eden, but in Rebel Without a Cause, who is a very easily parodied performance. But I, I just love the excess of it and how iconic it is and how it seems to to be the maximum example of a type of acting from this period, from this period of transition in terms of acting styles in movies. It's, it's a performance of extremes, but again, I think that works within the, within the context the film provides it. Then there is Toshiro Mifune for Samurai 1 Miyamoto Musashi. Toshiro Mifune is one of my favorite actors of all time. And I think he's, he's brilliant as Miyamoto Musashi. It's, it feels much more open of a performance than some of the swordsmen he'd play later in his career. It's very much a young man's performance in comparison to some of his later work. And I like how he brings some of the psychological complexity he exemplifies in his more morally dubious Kurosawa characters and brings them to this that this more simplistic and more mainstream story. I think it's even better in the sequels, but you know, this is, we're just talking about the first film, 1955. Then there is Robert Mitchum in The Night of the Hunter. When I was talking about his screenplay, I already mentioned that I think it's one of the great movie villains. And I have to say, I don't think the screenplay would work without Robert Mitchum because the love and hate thing with the tattoos on his hands, I think would become really cartoonish if not for Mitchum's genius acting. And finally, there is Spencer Tracy in Bad Day at Black Rock. 
And I don't like Spencer Tracy most of the time, but I loved him here. It's the perfect vessel for his type of stoic underplayed minimalism. In this sort of Western noir, it just, it just works. It's, it's one of those cases where you, even a stop clock is right twice a day. Like even the most limited of actors can sometimes find the perfect vessel for their talents. And this was it for Spencer Tracy. Those are my five. Um, I really like all those choices. Um, and my nominees are Spencer Tracy and Bad Day of Blackrock, James Dean, Mr. Beaton, Frank Sinatra and the Man with the Golden Arm, Ernest Borgnine and Marty, and Robert Mitchum in the Night of the Hunter. It's a great lineup. Yeah. So next we have Best Director. I am so sad looking at this of my lineup because I want to include so many more people. Sad that I had to leave out like Elia Kazan, David Lean, John Sturges, Delbert Mann. <laughs> Defining my nominees, I literally looked up if I had any other opportunity to recognize some of these people <laughs> in Oscar history. Because it's just, just, there are so many great directors working this year, and some of them only did one movie that was eligible, and some of them only did one movie at all. Anyway, my nominees are Robert Aldrich for Kiss Me Deadly. I mostly knew Robert Aldrich from his works with Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. <laughs> uh, Autumn Leaves, um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and Ashash Sweet Charlotte. So to see him working in this milieu of post of Cold War paranoia was incredible. Just I was just I was looking at the screen, my mouth open. The way he uses editing, the way he uses camera movements, and just the tremendous impact of the opening of this film and the closing, and the scene where a woman is tortured to death, what he shows, what he doesn't. It's just it's perfect. It's pulpy cinema done with the maximum artistry imaginable. Then I have Charles Lawton for The Night of the Hunter, the only film he ever directed. And I, I will forever resent the critics and the audiences of 1955 for lambasting this film so much that Charles Lawton never directed again until he died, I think, seven years later. It's, it is inconceivable to think of the masterpieces we may have lost because he didn't step behind the camera again because The Night of the Hunter is perfect. Next, there is Kenji Mizoguchi for Ugetsu. Again, I think we've talked a lot about Ugetsu during this, during this conversation. And, you know, that is all due to the genius of Kenji Mizoguchi of his mix of historical cinema with the movement of how you read painted scrolls. It is, he was one of the great masters of cinema. And even at the end of his career, which this was at the end of his career, uh, he was still able to create some of the, of the greatest works in film history. It's amazing how the last decade he was working, he created perhaps his best, most famous films. Few directors can say that. Then we have Douglas Sirk for All That Heaven Allows. 
Now, I do have a lot of opportunities to honor Douglas Sirk, but it felt wrong not to nominate him for the best film. So he's here for all that heaven allows. Which, again, all that I talk about color and sort of social critique is is just it's Sirkin cinema to a T and a lot of people talk about his films as subversion, but I think what makes them work is that he's so not earnest or sincere, but so matter of fact and direct in his approach to the material. So bold, almost bombastic. And finally, Jacques Tati for Monsieur Who Loves Holiday, which is an exercise in finesse and precision and I still can't figure out how he somehow directed the ocean's waves because there's an entire sequence that depends on the perfect choreography of the waves and I'm still like how did he do this <laughs> I don't quite understand it's, it's, it's perfect those are my five and I, I wish I could mention Cuso or Donovan and Kelly and Lewis and Madame Rosselli. So many greats this year. Uh, I had six. Uh, the five I ultimately settled on are Douglas Sir for All the Heaven Allows, Robert Aldrich for Kiss Me Deadly, Charles Lawton for The Night of the Hunter, Nicholas Ray for A Bull Without the Cause, and Kenji Mizuguchi for Ugetsu. It's funny. Like, we, we, we have four of the same nominees. Such, such a good So our last category is Best Picture, right? Yes. Best Picture. So I don't think I will talk a lot about any of these films because I've talked about them so much. So my nominees are All That Heaven Allows, produced by Ross Hunter for Universal Pictures. It's Always Fair Weather, produced by Arthur Freed for MGM. Journey to Italy. Produced by Adolfo Fossataro, Alfredo Guarini, and Roberto Rossellini, and distributed by Fine Arts Films. The Night of the Hunter, produced by Paul Gregory, and distributed by United Artists. And finally, Ugetsu, produced by Masaichi Nagata, and distributed in the United States by Edward Harrison, though originally produced for Dai Films. Those are my five. Nice. Um... So my nominees are All That Heaven Allows, Ross Hunter, producer, The Night of the Hunter, Paul Gregory, producer, Marty, Harold Hecht, producer, Rebel Without a Cause, David Weisbrot, producer, and Ugetsu, Masaichi Nagata, producer. So now is it time to, to say our winners? Yep. We um, again start with the last category, special effects, and end with the first best picture. And we take turns announcing the winners, I guess, going first. Okay, so for best visual effect, visual special effects, my winner is It Came from Beneath the Sea for Ray Eriehausen's great giant octopus that's actually kind of more of a squid, but I don't care. It's perfect, it's great. My winner is the Damn Busters. Long before, oh, you go ahead. 
No, no, I was just, that was an Oscar nominee, right? But it lost. Yeah, yeah. The winner was The Bridges at Coco Ray. Mm-hmm. Okay. So next is film editing. Yep. Okay, my winner for best film editing is Yolanda Benvenuti for Journey to Italy, because that film to me is pure cinema. It's the epitome of modernist cinema, and cinema is editing. So of course I would I would have to give it this award. So congratulations, Yolanda Benvenuti. <laughs> And my winner is Rebel Without a Cause. Edited by the great William H. Ziegler. The man who edited um, Strangers on the Train. A bunch of other classics I'm probably forgetting about. It's a great choice. Just that film sort of blend of psychology and action is great. Just propulsive and explosive. What's our next category? Um, best sound. Best sound. Okay, this was actually really an, a really easy choice. Again, because I love that last effect and all the works throughout the film. My winner is Kiss Me Deadly, Jack Solomon. I can't forget that fucking noise when the box is open. Sounds like the gates of hell. And my winner is, oh, um, before I announce my winner, um, I believe this is one of the films that inspired Quentin Tarantino in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. With the box. Though in, in, in Kiss Me Deadly, we do know what's in the box. <laughs> Nothing good. Um, my winner for Best Sound is The Desperate Hours. Oh, I, I really must watch The Desperate Hours. I first knew about this because um, I discovered that um, Michael Cimino remade it into a less than well-received movie. At this point, his career was nearing its end. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. I'm at least glad I was able to um, watch the original. I should probably watch because I'm a, an Humphrey Bogart fan, so I'll probably enjoy it oh, on some level. And it's also William Wyler and incredibly reliable. Okay. Next category is, is... original song. Score or song, sorry. Um, original song. Okay. Um let me find my file. Okay, best original song. My winner is Bella Notte. This is the night from Lady and the Tramp, Sonny Burke, and Peggy Lee. And my winner is also Bella Notte from Lady and the Tramp. Gaily match. Okay, next is best original song. A score. Oh, sorry. Oh, score. 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 <laughs> okay. My winner is The Man with the Golden Arm. By Elmer Burns, Elmer Burns, Burstein, oh, Burns, whatever. You know who it Elmer is. Bernstein. <laughs> Bernstein. Yeah. I'm Portuguese. I'm not a native English speaker. I'm sorry. Uh, my winner is East of Eden by Leonard Rosenman. Who also did great work in Rebel Without a Cause. He had a great year. Yeah. And 
and actually have best makeup and hairstyling. My winner is Hiroshima. Uh, my winner is um, Ugetsu. Next is costume design, and my winner is To Catch a Thief. It is head. You know, um, I believe that all um, the choices that we made between us are great and awesome, but my winner is a pretty easy one, all that heaven allows. All the costumes and gowns designed by Bill Thomas. And it's just gorgeous. Yeah. And it would later be beautifully twisted and referenced in Far From Heaven. Yeah. So, next is Art Direction, right? Yep. Okay. Direction. My winner for Art Direction... direction. Is all that heaven allows? Alexander Gullitson, Eric Barbaum, Russell A. Gaussman, and Julia Heron. I love this um, sort of universal crew that designed so many great looking movies for like Ross Hunter and Edward Lewis, the movies they produced. And my winner is also all that heaven allows. It's just undeniable stuff. I want that log cabin. With that window. <laughs> and next we have best color cinematography. And we're really on, on a streak here. My winner is All That Heaven Allows, Russell Maddy. And my winner is also All That Heaven Allows. If Robert Burks hadn't won the year before with me, he might have stood a stronger chance, but All That Heaven Allows is just undeniable. So next we have best black and white cinematography. So this was probably the closest category in terms of picking a winner. It was really complicated for me to choose, but my final choice is The Night of the Hunter, Stanley Cortez. And my choice, I had to go with Kiss Me Deadly, Ernest Laszlo. What's next? Uh, best cartoon short film. My winner, because I love weird experimental stuff, is Blinkety Blank by Norman McLaren. Nice. And my winner is One Froggy Evening. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty great, too. I almost picked It's my runner-up. Next, we have Best International Film. My winner, my winner is, is For Death from Denmark. And my winner is Pathra Panchali from India. Director Satya Jitray. Oh, the, the director of Ordet is Carl Theodor Dreyer. And this time, we're actually rewarding the director's um, with our awards instead of just the country. I don't know why they uh, have that role. It, it is so stupid. Because someone should win the Oscar. It shouldn't be an abstract national entity. Yeah. So, and, for, 
Next, we have adapted screenplay. My winner is The Wages of Fear, Henry Georges Clouseau and Jérôme Geronimi. And my winner, I was considering Marty, but I had to go with The Night of the Hunter. And for best original screenplay, my winner is It's Always Fair Weather by Betty Comden and Adel Screen, who are actually Oscar nominated. And my winner is Rebel Without a Cause. And by Stuart Stern, Irving Shulman, and Nicholas Ray. And we're moving to supporting actress, I believe. Yep. And my winner is Kinuya Tanaka for Ugetsu. And my winner is Lillian Gish in The Night of the Hunter. For Best Supporting Actor, my winner is Sidney Poitier for Blackboard Jungle. And my winner is Raymond Massey in East of Eden. Best Actress, which is always great, as we have pointed out. My winner is Catherine Hepburn for Summertime. And how I wish was... I could, yeah, so I was just going to say how I wish I could change the performances she won the Oscar for, <laughs> because yeah. for such a great actress, that is a, that is a sad track record. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, only one of them is truly deserved. In and it's a tie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not a bad tie. It's actually a great tie, and I'm glad it happened, but... Yeah. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though. But... Mm -hmm. As great as Catherine Hepburn is, is in summertime, I have to go with Jane Wyman and all the Capella House. Great pick. I think it's her best performance. Yeah, yeah I would agree. For Next best actor, have... oh sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. Next we have best leading actor. Say. Okay, if I wish I could give a tie here, <laughs> but I won't. So my winner is Robert Mitchum for *The Night of the Hunter*, with James Zine coming in a close second for his era-defining performance in *Rebel Without a Cause*. And. I was strongly considering Spencer Tracy in Bad Day of Black Rock, uh, Black Rock, but I had to go with Robert Mitchum in The Night of the Hunter. Don't let Zeta Short hear you say you almost <laughs> gave an Oscar to Spencer Tracy. Uh, um, um, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think she'll be happy, but maybe she's already come to terms with how she feels. Okay, next is Best Director. My winner is Kenji Mizoguchi for Dugetsu. Such a great choice. But I had to go with Douglas Sirk for all that heaven allows. So we come to the last category. Drumroll. This may be shocking because I didn't give it that, that, much, that many honors, but my winner is Journey to Italy which is one of my favorite films of all time and one that I love to write and think about. To me, it's a moment of transition in cinema 
perfectly crystallized in a very weird film. Not conspicuously weird, but weird when you start to think about its structure and what it's doing, combining neorealism with what at the time could be really said to be a fascistic white telephone type of Italian melodrama. That is my winner. What's your winner? My winner is All That Heaven Allows. Dirk really did a clean sweep through your awards. Yeah. Um, for me, it's just the movie from this year that resonated with me the most. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of modern day Best Picture winners, it wins in a lot of categories, but not screenplay. Yeah. Mine only wins editing. It's Best Picture in Editing. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I think two is the maximum any film wins in my dream Oscars. And in my personal ballot, all of them win something except for Marty. Oh, poor Marty. Well, it won the Oscar and the Palm, though, so we, we yeah, can't be it's fine. It. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. So, I love that we were able to talk about this year in particular and there's just so much that um, anyway, it's just so rewarding to talk about these years um, which kind of makes it a shame it makes it all the more shameful that the actual ceremony didn't really represent it that well it's kind of i think something that we've seen in all of our armies that this was a a point a period of change in cinema both in america and internationally and it's sad how conservatives at least stylistically the oscars remained yeah for sure um we had films like love is a many splendid thing being a major contender um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no. With Jennifer Jones that. and Jello, <laughs> you know, and, I like I like Jennifer Jones. I wrote an essay about her for Photogenie, and I can't yeah, defend I, I, her. I do, I do I, like I Jennifer Jones, just not in this movie. Um, which was a big hit. It won three Oscars. Um. And one of them was kind of confusing to me, but the other two, I guess I don't object to. But this is just kind of a weird year, and so many of these movies have been forgotten about. Um, Especially, like, the screenplay categories, where we still had motion picture story in its penultimate year. Um, And best story in screenplay, which is what they called original screenplay back then. Um, Where we had interrupted melody um, when, yeah, this is just kind of a mess. That win is so weird. Even considering the competition, it had such. Anyway, I'm not a fan of biopics. I'm not the best person to be talking about. <laughs> there, are, there are good ones and there are bad ones. The Academy mostly rewards the bad ones. <laughs> I mean, at least it wasn't the Seven Little Foys. Um, I didn't see that movie, 
and I don't I think I well. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a fair, sane choice on her part. I don't recommend it. <laughs> well, the only screenplay nominee I didn't watch was The Sheep Has Five Legs, but I'm probably going to try to find it one of these days. But yeah, I really agree with you. And some of them are so bizarre. Like, again, I understand nominating Strategic Air Command. I nominated in Cinematography. But nominating in Screenplay? Or in this case, in Story? I don't know. Uh, didn't they also uh, nominate a similar... They also nominated a, sim- a similar sort of military aviation film the year before... Uh, no, not two years before... I think it was called. Uh, let me look I it mean, up. There are a lot of military-themed films throughout this. Like yeah. there is the Private War of Major Benson. There is Strategic Air Command. Above and Beyond, <laughs> also written by Bernie Lay Jr. Um, I think that this kind of demonstrates. Um, the 50s were a bit less consistent in quality than some other decades for film. As much as there are still a lot of classics that we fondly remember, there's also a lot of stuff that doesn't really hold up and is you probably don't remember. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff shows up in random Academy nominations at, around this time. Yeah, actually, I have to say this project, you know, the letterboxed stats. Yeah. Like when you go to the all time stats, it has it has the decades for which you an average gives the best ratings. And 1950s were there before I started watching the nominees from 1955. But once I got into my mind, I'm going to watch almost all of the nominated films like A Man Called Peter. The 1950s didn't set a chance. Yeah. Anyway, do we have any questions to answer? Oh, um, I think there was yeah. one. I think there was um, I'm pulling them up right now. Um, one moment. Uh, yeah, just one. Um, Emily Bukowski Malik asked us, in your opinion, what are the best two mo- what are the best two seconds of the movies from 1955? Yeah, that is a weird question. Because <laughs> I was like, what is something that can be condensed in two seconds that I love about 55 films? <laughs> and I came up with two answers. One of them from the eligibility list and one of them from the entire year. From the entire year, my choice is the introduction of Apu in Pater Panchali as the soundtrack sort of swells, the camera pushes in, and he's revealed from behind a blanket. That's my favorite two seconds. If not that, if we just go by the eligible films, then it's the two seconds. I don't want to spoil, but right before the box is open for the last time in Kiss Me Deadly, those tense, sweaty two seconds. Uh, it's hard to choose one, but um, I guess the moment which Rock Hudson and Dorsey holding each other silhouetted in the light blue against the window pane 
that is an incredibly striking moment, and I'll just go with that. Yeah, that that is beautiful. Great cinematography. Yeah. Still received zero nominations from the Real Academy. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. It's, yeah, I know that. Uh, I I know that it took audiences a while to properly appreciate Douglas Sir, but it's kind of strange. I think that's it for 1955, right? Yeah. Um, well, I say thank you so much for inviting me and wrecking my letterbox with 1950s mediocrity. <laughs> no, but this is, this is really fun to research. Mm-hmm. 1955. But yeah. after weeks of watching just almost just 1955 films, I'm excited to free myself from this year and go watch other stuff. Yeah. I just love the feeling of getting a brief break until I get to the next year, um, which starts out fun and it kind of gets exhausting after a while. But thank you so much, Claudio, for uh, Green to appear on the podcast with me, talk about this year. It was a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. It was fun to talk to you too. This is, you know, this is like my hobby in podcast form because I have a bunch of spreadsheets with my alternate Oscars. So this is really fun to do. Thank you so much. So, um, how can we find you like on social media and internet and what you do? Okay, I am a film critic. I write for the Film Experience blog for Photogenie and for a Portuguese website called Magazine AGD. If you can read in Portuguese, you can look for that last one. Um, I also work as a theater costume designer. I have a show that is going to be restaged at a different venue coming up in June. If you're around Lisbon and you want to watch a show based on Divergent Suicides, Search for Lisbon Sisters. I did the sets and costumes. Uh, where you can find me? You can find me at Claudio Alves DC in Letterboxd and Twitter, Instagram, though I don't post almost anything, and Facebook. Thank you so much for having me. So um, you can find the Alternate Oscars account on Twitter at Alternate Oscars. I also have a Patreon account for this. Um, podcast on a link in the description below. You can find me on Twitter at Gabe Joker, on Instagram at my name, Gabe Warren, um, and on Letterboxd at Mr. Hulo. Um, be sure to rate and review this podcast for visibility's sake and subscribe through your choice of server. And until the next episode, sit back and relax, cheers and enjoy, and thank you for listening to the alternate Oscars. <laughs>